Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Boo Radley's, Toys, Books, and Gifts for the Quirky-Minded, and Atticus, the coffee shop and gift store for the grown-up lurking within, both on Howard, across from the carousel, in downtown Spokane. Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. The poet Francis Richard Breskel, who preferred to go by the nickname Slats, died earlier this month. He was Spokane-born and remained heavily invested in the local poetry scene throughout his life. Later in this episode, with the help of a few of his friends, we'll hear some of his work and look back on the impressions that he left. But first, let's look ahead to next Tuesday, January 30th. That's when Johnny Cash, the official concert experience, comes to town for a one-night-only event that aims to recreate a Johnny Cash performance using enhanced archival footage paired with a live band. The guitarist Debbie Horton is part of that live band, and she has the distinction of being the only woman to have ever played lead guitar for Johnny Cash. When I spoke with Debbie by phone, I naturally asked her about that experience, but as it turns out, she got to know the man in black long before she joined him on stage. Well, I first met Johnny in 1972, and I was a child, and uh, our family went to Nashville for vacation. And I lived in eastern Virginia, which that was a long drive, 700 miles, and we never had gone to places like that before. And I wanted to go there so bad, and and so we went, and I had heard that Johnny went to this uh, church in Nashville called the Evangel Temple. And we were there on a Sunday, and I begged my parents. I said, oh, please, let's go over there. He just might be there. He might be there. Yeah, right. Well, sure enough, he was there. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the service, I got to meet Johnny. It was, like I say, I was just a kid, and, and he was so sweet and so nice. And I was in his fan club, and I had, you know, learned how to play guitar a little bit, even at that young age. And and then there was a friendship that had developed over the years because I would keep going to his shows. And then I became involved in his fan club quite a bit. And we knew each other. When he would see me, he'd always recognize me. And when I graduated high school, they invited me out to their home to have lunch with them. And so it was just a, a wonderful thing. And Johnny was such a, a nice man. And one time I was at a show in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And at this particular show, now I was grown up by then, all right? And uh, I told him I, I didn't get a chance to see him before that particular concert. So I wrote a note and I gave it to one of the security people. And I said, you know, would you give this to Johnny? And that's as far as I knew. I didn't know whether he got the note or not. But on the note, I said, Johnny, I'm here in the audience, and sorry I didn't get to see you, but I've learned to play guitar now pretty good, and I can play like Bob Wooten and Luther Perkins, and one day I'd like to show you. And that was pretty much the extent of it. Well, halfway through the show, (laughs) Johnny says, Debbie, come play the guitar for me. Oh, my gosh, right in the middle of the concert. There's a young lady out there. Huh? (laughs) Are you the only one? (laughs) Uh, her name is Debbie Burr. Debbie, I got a note backstage from Debbie Burr, and she's been to a lot of our shows for the last few years, and I'm fixing to spring it on her. She, she wrote me this note and said, if you let me come on stage with you, just one song I'll show you, I can play it just like Bob. <laughs> Debbie Burr, come play the guitar, will you? 
So I get up, I go on stage. I'm on stage with Johnny Cash. I was like shaking all over, and and he says, uh, "What do you want to play?" You know, and I said, "Well, let's do Big River." You know, so he had never heard me, so how did he even know I could do it or not? So we played Big River. I played it. He sang it, and it was it just brought the house down, and it was so much fun. And and then they gave me a recording of the whole thing, and and so all the years I'd see him after that, uh, he'd say, "There's Debbie, the only woman that ever played lead guitar for me." So it was a, a wonderful thing that he did, and it got me started. Uh, you know, wanting to have a career of my own, which I which I went on to pursue. And you mentioned that you were involved. I think you were president of the Johnny Cash fan club of the Virginia chapter. Actually, I was the Virginia representative. The presidents were based out of Indiana. And in, in fact, it was so funny. Um, we played Peoria with the Johnny Cash concert experience back in November. And the president of the fan club, the lady is 98 years old now. She was there at the concert. The last time I saw her, we were sitting at a table in Johnny's home having lunch with him and June and the family. It had been years since I saw her. And I thought, oh, my gosh, talk about a full circle moment, you know. And it's just been such a blessing in my life to have known these people and then the people that I have made friends with that are connected with all this for all these years, even though, you know, Johnny's been gone now for 20 years, but uh, he still touches lives and his music is just as relevant as it ever was. And what about his music spoke to you at such a young age that you became a really passionate, diehard Johnny Cash fan? Like, what was the quality about his music that really resonated with you? When I first saw Johnny Cash, you know, I was in my my early teens, and everybody was into David Cassidy and the Partridge family and and these pretty boy acts, you know, and and it was it seemed so fluff and superficial to me, you know, and I <laughs> and when I saw Johnny Cash for the first time, I go, man, this guy, he's singing about real things and truth and real feelings, and and look at him, I mean, my gosh, I mean, he was a man's man. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black Why you never see bright colors on my back And why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down Living in the hopeless, hungry side of town I wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime, but is there because he's a victim of the time. So I latched on to him and his music and his authenticity, and he was who he was. I mean, there was no pretentious nature about him. I mean, he and he was very humble. He came from a very humble background, and he was at the peak of his career. In fact, what we're doing in the uh, Johnny Cash concert experience, that's the era that the show is centered around, too. So it, it's amazing to me to think, you know, I watched all this as a child, and I'm up here playing lead guitar for him on this 20-foot screen. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's, life is weird, <laughs> you know, but it's wonderful. Yeah, and that's a good point, I think, to seg into this concert experience. So it's being billed as Johnny Cash, the official concert experience. And it is kind of a multimedia spectacular. I mean, there are, from what I understand, video images of him, and Mm -hmm. you are playing live accompaniment to that. Can you describe, like, what audiences are in store for when they attend this? 
Well, this is state-of-the-art and the first of its kind, to my knowledge, okay? Um, They got access to Sony archives, and they went into the Sony vaults, and they found video from the original Johnny Cash TV show that aired from 1969 to 71, okay? And that was really right at the peak of Johnny's career, and he looks great, and, you know, that's when the biggest hits were made. He's winning all the awards at that time. And so they took the film, they cleaned it up, and they took all of the music out of it, so it's only Johnny's voice, all right? So it's on this 20-foot screen. It's been digitally enhanced. That's the word I want to try to say. Okay, so he looks crystal clear, like he's popping right off the screen. It's scary a little bit. Like, oh, my gosh, Johnny, it's turned into, like, Godzilla size, you know? <laughs> he's got this little, this little person, and then Johnny Gaz up there, like, 20 foot tall, you know? <laughs> but uh, it's powerful. Let's just put it that way. And it's very colorful. I mean, the show has got... I mean, there's a lot of things going on, and the, and the background has been based off of the old TV show set. It's beautiful. And there's a five-piece band, and we're playing it all note for note. And, you know, when Johnny starts singing, we better be there because <laughs> he's not going to slow up. <laughs> you know, nobody better mess up because, <laughs> you know, because everything is timed to the second, even all the lighting. And then in between his son, John Carter Cash, that's what makes it the official Johnny Cash concert experience because the estate of Johnny Cash is behind this. They have endorsed it. They're involved with it. And we have a music director and a, and a production company and a lighting company. And uh, one of the video people that worked on some of the famous Marvel superhero movies worked on our video. And his son, John Carter Cash, is making commentary in between a lot of the songs. And then the live band, we get to perform some of the, the songs live. It, it's a celebration of his music and his message And it's not like a story of his life, and it's not like a cheesy tribute show, you know, where where somebody's up there trying to imitate Johnny Cash impersonators. It's none of that. And uh, what sort of songs are you performing as part of this set list? Oh, well, all the hits are there. Like, you know, Ring of Fire, Folsom Prison Blues, I Walk the Line, Sunday Morning Coming Down, you know, Man in Black. And then there's some surprises, okay? And we go back to the early catalog you know, when Johnny first started out, and some of the old Sun songs are in there, and A Boy Named Sue. Well, my daddy left home when I was three, and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. I mean, with Johnny being gone for 20 years, this is going to be your next best thing to having actually seen Johnny live. And it's funny because I visit with the folks after the shows, and I remember this one lady came up to me. She had to been in her late 20s, early 30s, crying, just boo-hoo crying. I said, what? And she says, she says, I never thought in my life that I would be able to hear this kind of music played live, to hear Johnny Cash's voice like, you know, in a live, quote unquote, you know, setting with, with the live band and all that. And she said, it just was just so wonderful. She said, I could have never gone to one of his shows, but this is so great for me. And I go, well, that's what we're doing. Then, then we have the people that have been fans for years. They're crying because they're remembering all this stuff, <laughs> you know. So it's good. It's, it's touching all the right hearts, I think. And here's a question. Do you get to relive one of your most exciting moments and get to play Big River as part of this set list? I do. <laughs> I do. And it's 
so sweet because we do it on the second half. And um, one of the male singers on the show, he'll look over at me and he'll say, Debbie, he said, I know the story, but tell the folks a story about how you're the only woman that ever played lead guitar for Johnny Cash. And so I tell the story, you know, briefly. And then he says, well, let's do Big River. And I said, well, I'll play it if you sing it. So he starts singing it and then we play it. So, yeah, it's like reliving that again. That's one of the definitely one of the highlights of the show for me to be able to do that. And, you know, lastly, I had a question about Johnny Cash, the man, because you met him in person. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we know Johnny Cash, the man in black, you know, part of the, the outlaw country mm-hmm. movement. But you mentioned that he was humble in person. Um, was he kind of unassuming when you met him in person? Very much so. And I was around him a lot. I was around him for over 20 years. But he would be the type of person, if he came up to you or you came up to him, you say, hi, I'm EJ. And he'd say, EJ, what can I do for you? That would be the first thing he'd say. If you say, I like a picture, like an autograph. I saw people say, I just want to shake your hand. Sure, he'd shake the hands, you know. And the best story that I think I've ever heard, an interviewer asked Johnny this question. They said, Johnny, when you're out with your family, okay, and you're having dinner somewhere and you're eating your meal and somebody comes up to you during your meal and they say, hey, can I have an autograph? He said, how do you handle that? What do you do? And he says, I put my fork down. (laughs) <laughs> and he said, because I remember I wouldn't be having that great meal if it wasn't for these people that have done that. He said, people don't bother him that much. But when they came up to him, he never considered it a bother. And I saw him like that so many times. And he would have loved this show. He would have really, really enjoyed seeing the reaction that his music is still getting 20 years, even after his death. It's amazing. Well, Debbie, I really want to thank you for taking the time out to chat about this today. I, yeah, the, the anecdotes and also hearing your excitement as you talk about the experience of you know, performing these songs live and getting to relive that, that moment. Um, yeah, it's just been fantastic. So thank you so much. Thank you, EJ. Have a good day. That was Debbie Horton, who's playing guitar as part of Johnny Cash, the official concert experience, which comes to the First Interstate Center for the Arts next Tuesday, January 30th. Tickets for that event and more details can be found at firstinterstatecenter.org. And if you're interested in learning more about Debbie, visit her website at debbiehorton.com. And now, we take some time to remember Francis Richard Breskel, who was known as Dick, or Breskel, or better still, the pen name that he adopted for himself, Slats. Slats passed away on January 9th at the age of 92, and by the end of his life, he had been active in the Spokane poetry scene for close to six decades. Earlier this week, I sat down in the studio with Anne-Marie Burke, Rose Hodges, and Pava Young to talk about what Slats meant to them and Rose started by recalling the first time that they ever met. I met Slats, November 21st, 1999, at a poetry reading, and three people were there at first. I wasn't there for poetry. I was having coffee with a friend, but he came over before he started and said, are you ladies here for the poetry reading? And we went, no, but we could be. Well, have you ever written a poem? Yes, and who are you? And that's how you met. How did your friendship develop or your relationship After develop? After the poetry reading, he was at one end of the room, I was at the other, 
and he started walking toward me and I said, do you hug? And he picked me up because he was a weightlifter then and set me down. And I said the other side. And he picked me up and he set me down. <laughs> and the next day we talked three hours at the Onion. If I were to describe him in just a few words, I'd say he loved history, geology, philosophy, wildflowers. Although he said once, weeds are just flowers in the wrong place. <laughs> um, Anne-Marie, what about you? What was your relationship to Slats? Uh, I met Slats through Rose a number of years ago, maybe eight years ago, and um, went to his poetry readings when he would read every every month at Auntie's bookstore. And um, we became friends. I liked philosophical discussions, and he sent out poetry that he had written daily. Every day he wrote at least one poem, often in sonnet form, and he'd send these out to a lot of his friends, and I was one of those that received his poems. He had a, he was a great observer of people, and he loved women. He knew a great many women, and uh, he, he wrote this one poem from the perspective of a woman, uh, his understanding of what it would be like, perhaps, to be a woman. And uh, it, it's, it's a poem of great insight and humor. What I Have to Fear you asked me what it is I have to fear. Babies, disease, and robbery, and rape, for starters. Buy a glass or two of beer. I need to celebrate my great escape. I'm flattered by your offer, but you men are such very, very expensive toys. You want to play a game that I can't win. We both know your love words are empty noise. You're not someone I'd introduce to mother. You're witty and you're cute. That's not enough. You won't keep me warm in winter weather. You think I'm nothing but a bit of fluff. I am. I'll always be when you're around. And I'll be someone else when you leave town. I love that poem because he's writing it from the perspective of a woman, from what he knows of women and how he might feel if he were a woman. I'd like to read another one. If I may. He, he read a poem for my wedding. Uh, I was married three years ago, and uh, he wanted to read this at our wedding, and I, I think it's a great love poem. It's number 323. I'll search your sacred body for your soul, and when I find it, I will worship there. Inside the wealth of grace and peace you hold, I'll breathe in your beauty, exhale a prayer. Sweet messenger from all that is, love me if you can. And if you can't, at least permit a flow of whispered words, a dream of luxury and rest within your breast. Goddess daughter of a water sprite, Listen to this song. My wandering hands arpeggio all over you. A quiet singing of paradise in foreign lands. Fly with me, bright love, beyond all loving. We are all. Time and space are nothing. And then Pava shared her first encounter with Slats as a fellow poet. I met Slats probably over 20 years ago, 
and it was through poetry, but I had never really ventured out. It was an open mic, poetry reading. I was very shy and insecure, and I went to the, you know, at the assigned time and place, and I really had to screw up my courage to get up there, you know, and read my stuff, which tends to be humorous sardonic love poems or whatever it might take. A lot of failed relationships under my belt, thank you. But I got up and it was like, I'm done. You know, I did that. And he came up to me afterwards and was like, damn, great delivery. You know, you really project. I could hear every word. That was great. People were laughing. They loved it. And it was like, really? No, it was so kind of him to come up and do that. He must have sensed my insecurity. And you know, that propelled me to keep coming back and writing more. And I actually really gained so much confidence and so many friendships, obviously, that have extended over years and years. I wound up being a featured reader at John Tam's art gallery once and um, with another reader I and at... Um, Dick Case, who was another poet who had readings in Coeur d'Alene on Sherman Avenue. And I just, you know, I mean, you talk about an ego boost, and it all can be traced to Slats and his encouraging words. And uh, Slats himself had strong philosophies about what poetry was and why poetry was important. And we've got actually a recording of him in his own words describing or defining poetry. Poetry is expression beyond argument, beyond the dictionary meaning of words. Poetry is the sound of words, and poetry is the taste of words. Sometimes poetry is a brief moving picture show. Watch the pictures, listen to the word music. Um, but I also wondered if when you had these long philosophical discussions with him, if they included poetry and if you ended up discussing the elements of poetry and the importance of poetry. I, one of the things he said to me in the beginning was when he was about three or four years old, he went into a library with somebody and they opened books before him and he wanted to write words that would be in a book. Uh, the thing I remember is he inspired, young people came to his poetry slams and they were driven to say the truth down from deep. And they were comfortable there. And I heard some fantastic lines from them. And I think the reason he liked sonnets is because you, you are constricted. And he liked the challenge of making things turn out right. And I loved the sonnet form that he used. So I, I would comment to him that I loved his his sonnet form, especially because it had that couplet that seemed to wrap everything up and tell us what it was about. And he wasn't just known in poetic circles. He was also known in musical circles, wasn't he? Well, I will say that he open, used to open up every poetry slam There'd be all these people, like 44, I counted on one time, and you sign up, and you're the, the first 23 to sign up, got to read. Well, we knew it was time to start when he would burst into some song, Waltzing Matilda or whatever. Johnny comes marching home again. 
He and I sang a couple songs at the poetry groups, mm. and uh, that was fun. He loved music. He loved the Nocturnes by Chopin. Yes. And I was practicing a Chopin piece I wanted to play for him and you when he died, unfortunately. But I wanted to, I was working on Chopin for him because he loved those romantic, sad Chopin songs. Sonnet 1306, remember that you're going to die. The house of life you're building won't be finished if you don't settle down and do the work. And if you settle down and do the work, it won't be finished. Death laughs at work. What really matters overwhelms. Sleeping, waking, eating, pooping, peeing, and managing the happiness available if fundamentals get themselves fulfilled. Breathe in, breathe out. Celebrate that wondrous accomplishment. I want to thank all three of you, Rose, Anne-Marie, and Pava, for coming in today and just, you know, sharing some of these memories and sharing these poems. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Anne-Marie Burke, Rose Hodges, and Pava Young there, remembering Francis Richard Breskel, a.k.a. Slats, who spent much of his life writing and reading poetry around Spokane. Slats passed away in early January at the age of 92, and his pen name is spelled S-L-A-T-S-Z, and for the time being, you can still go online to read his blog with extensive wildflower photography, as well as his YouTube channel featuring poetry readings. As we discussed during the interview, Slats also moved in musical circles, and some of his poems were set to music by the brother and sister duo Daryl and Renee Redeker. We heard their song Sun is Honey a little earlier in the program, and we close now with the song Busy People. We are born Yes, the world is a beautiful place, and I'm talking 
about it with you. I'm talking about it with you. We are both busy people, us living in a busy world. And that is as it should be. But there are times in my mind when you are everyone else and you are everyone else in the world. And the world is a beautiful place. Yes, the world is a beautiful place. And I'm talking about it with you. Talking about it with you. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. If you'd like to listen again or catch future episodes as soon as they air, subscribe to the Thursday Arts Preview podcast on major platforms like Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm EJ Ionelli. Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Boo Radley's, toys, books, and gifts for the quirky-minded, and Atticus, the coffee shop and gift store for the grown-up lurking within, both on Howard, across from the carousel, in downtown Spokane.